Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. I've already had a lot of great conversations about the weirdness and pleasure of being a writer. So please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you do enjoy these episodes, which go up every Monday morning without fail, please tell other people about them. I do this on my own, so it helps a lot. If you want to send me a suggestion for a future guest or comment on an episode or just find out more about what I am doing, I have books of my own, hint, hint, please go to nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Anita Leahy. Anita is the author of six books, including The Mystery Shopping Cart, a collection of essays, and two poetry collections, Spinning Sidekick and Out to Dry in Cape Breton, as well as the memoir, The Last Goldfish, which was a finalist for the Ottawa Book Award. She's also an award-winning magazine journalist and serves as the series editor for the annual Best Canadian Poetry Anthology. Anita's most recent two books were both published in 2023. Fire Monster, a poetic, partly true-life graphic novel collaboration with artist Pauline Conley, was published by Palimpsest Press. And the poetry collection While Supplies Last was published by the Signal Editions imprint of Vehicule Press. Author Luke Hathaway called Fire Monster a gift of storytelling and a work of grace, while poet Molly Peacock called While Supplies Last capacious, generous, and gently funny. Anita and I talk about why she maintains a very limited online presence these days, how her journalistic instincts intersect with her poetic impulses, and, on that topic, how she turned a series of COVID-era radio traffic reports, from a friend of mine, incidentally, into verse. I feel like I do need to own that we did have this part of this conversation already, and then my my uh, power went out as we were speaking. So we're sort of recreating a uh, an existing conversation. And I, where we actually started was um, the research I was doing for this interview, which I always do for, for guests who come on this podcast. And what I found with you was your Instagram account, which, we, as we've discussed pre-blackout, was, uh, is a little sparse. Um, your, your, <laughs> your Instagram posts, the most recent one is April. There's a little flurry of activity in April and the end of March. And then before that, it's June 2020. So you you are not the kind of writer who is obsessively building your online identity or you know maintaining your brand uh, via social media. Is it just kind of an uh, uh, an alien thing to you, or is it just an uncomfortable thing to you? Um, I think probably a little bit the latter. I'm I have nothing against it, and I wish I was better at it. And I do engage a little more on Facebook and I used to more also intermittently, but more frequently on um, the platform formerly known as Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, um, I used to sometimes enjoy uh, being on there and something that came up in our, in our previous version one of this was, 
how when I am on there, I always find really interesting stuff, good, thoughtful, um, or fun, or all of the above kinds of content and um, things people have posted that I'm really glad I saw, which I recognize says something about the types of people I'm following online, because that's not what you usually hear about social media. Um, and and, and in, I find it so engaging that it overwhelms me and I have to back away from it. And, it, and then, I, and then I, I come to resent it because it's taking up too much of my mental and even emotional energy. I get too involved. <laughs> so right. to sort of, I have like an instinctive obligation to respond in a way that isn't just rote. So it, it's too much for me. And I, um, so I have to, um, engage on there, um, judiciously, uh, even though I know it's possible to compartmentalize it and say, okay, I'm going to spend 10 minutes doing social media stuff right now. And I just, I, I haven't, um, been able to make that happen. And I, I also know probably my publishers would prefer if I had, although I did have a publicist once tell me they rather do it themselves because, oh, interesting. because, because sometimes writers do things that are not what they would wish. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, <laughs> I felt a little bit absolved when I was told, <laughs> that, but right. I hadn't done anything yet that would embarrass them. It was, right. it was pre, like we were sort of having a planning conversation. I said, I'm really going to try. <laughs> and she said, don't worry about it. We like to handle that stuff. I feel like I'm one of the few people who, and and maybe you're part of this, this very, this vanishingly small crowd or category that genuinely feels a, some sense of loss with what Twitter has become. It was the one social media platform that was all built around conversations and it was very text-based, which kind of mm -hmm. connects probably to your preference and my preference. You could speak to people and speak and watch other people speak and, and, and have conversations. And I feel like Instagram just feels like kind of fun, which, right. <laughs> which is fun, but you know, fun has its place. Yeah. But we, we wouldn't be literary writers if we put yeah. fun above everything else. Like it just doesn't feel that yeah. engaging on a deeper level. It just feels like, Oh, that's sweet. Oh, that's cute. That's, that looks great. That's hilarious. And then <laughs> That's well, as deep as it goes. And as you see, I don't really, I don't really spend you time on there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, I never spent a ton of time on Twitter either, but more because I found it too engaging. The fact that your, <laughs> your online brand for better, for, for to, to use a terrible term, but your online presence is so sparse. Um, it also speaks to a kind of uh, the, the primacy of like, and the importance of dormancy and a length of time that that is involved with your process and it also connects to a quote that i found in an interview with you where you were talking about working on a collection of poems around the cape breton fire in the 1970s and that interview took place in 2014 which suggests you have a long kind of gestation period, a long dormancy. There's a lot of things you're kind of, you don't kind of put things together and then they're out 18 months later. 
is that the case or do you find like you 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 work that way and your process needs time and and yeah. uh, deliberation yeah for sure i like to let things sit and go back to them and i uh see them more clearly um my favorite part of writing is revision mm. this didn't come up when we talked about this earlier so hey this is new this is yeah. a brand new <laughs> <laughs> um and and you revise better after some time and space so i think it's a natural process for me it's also practical in that I usually have a few creative things going on at once. And that's partly to do with just my own interests and things I want to be working on and sort of, you know, the, the enticing ideas or problems I'm following and, and, um, and then, you know, toggling that with actual paying work and, you know, family life and managing everyday life so things things are sort of jostling for space and being set aside for a while and coming back and um but something like the fire thing i had a lot i wanted to dig into partly research wise and so there had to be time and space for that as well can you talk about that fire a little bit and its place in your your personal history your family history yeah but also like how it became so embedded in your imagination yeah so um this wildfire we're talking about is um <laughs> my as i note in one of either in wild supplies last or in fire monster which is the the collaborative graphic novel in verse that those poems appear in as well um with pauline conley um somewhere i note that um this fire now would seem like a quaint disaster, I think, compared to the wildfires we're dealing with today, which is something I would not have known was going to happen during the time I was working on those poems. Like a, a few years in, the um, Fort McMurray fire happened. And that was the first, I think, real, huge, enormous, terrifying one in Canada that we would all remember. This mm -hmm. fire that happened in Cape Breton was in 1976. Um, it was June at a time when it's usually quite damp. They have a long, damp spring out east. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it was a very dry spring. There were lots of little fires popping up all over the place. And um, it it burned through the village of Manadu, which is where my father grew up and where lots of families still lived. And it burned down my nanny and grampy's home and lots of other homes and the and the church which was about a hundred year old white gothic structure with a spire that you you know the the fishermen could see from out on the water in their boats um and so and and it it was a scary event um that stuck with me and that I thought about a lot as a little girl. I used to worry that our house was going to burn down. I used to wonder what it was like for my grandparents when they knew this fire was coming for their house. And and also grew up when, you know, visiting, hearing lots of stories about what happened during the fire and how it was fought and what people thought went wrong and 
how the fire behaved, which was very erratic and almost like it was a living creature, which in some ways, I, that's how I think of fire now. And I guess it, something about that, that the timing of it in my life, it just embedded. And at some point, decades later, I thought, I think I need to write about this fire <laughs> and, and <laughs> learn a little more about it as now as an adult, now that I'm consciously aware that it's been following me around, I have questions. And so I started asking questions of relatives and also finding other people to talk to um, and doing research on how fire behaves and how wildfires are fought. And, um, and so it was all a kind of the, the time period of working on those poems, which basically spanned a decade, was also a wonderful period of exploration. Um, I learned a lot about fire, um, some of which appears in the poems, so some of which doesn't. It's not quite the process people would normally think of when they're thinking about creating a book of poems, creating <laughs> or, or a group of poems. It's not you saying, well, I, I sort of went out into the woods and went deep into myself <laughs> and I communed yeah. with my muse and went deep. It's like, it speaks to your background, your journalism background and your your other writerly identity as a journalist, that your one of your first instincts is, all right, get out the notebook, do the research, <laughs> yeah, go talk yeah. to people, get some data, get some facts, make some observations. Has that always, have you always been able to twin these two kind of writerly impulses or were they ever in conflict at a certain point in your life? Or are they uh, always in conflict and twinned at the same time? I don't think they're in conflict at all. Um, uh, I, I, I think it, I think, well, I could be wrong. <laughs> I think they mesh really well. Like, um, there's an impulse to something and yeah, my instinct is to learn. And I don't know why the impulse is there. And I think my curiosity about why the impulse is there, what is what makes me want to write. And part of my response to that curiosity is to ask questions and try to find out more. Sometimes it turns into poems and sometimes it starts with a poem. And then I think, oh, there's more here. I need to do some looking around and digging. And sometimes it starts with just the questions and then it, you know, turn. And sometimes things become both. There was journalism that needed to be done according to me. And there was also a poem that needed to be done according to me. And so it's, it, it's not in conflict. And sometimes I do actual work on something journalistic and there's stuff that I can't, that, that sort of, I'm still sorting out because I've done all this research, but it doesn't belong in the article for whatever reason. And so then poems happen um, mm. uh, or the other way around, you know, um, I also, in my first book, did all these poems related to clotheslines and became also fascinated in issues around clotheslines, which are super weird. Like there's a lot of weird social history around what clotheslines represent and why some people mm. hate them and don't want them in their communities. And there's bylaws against them all over the place, which is insane when you think <laughs> of how much energy dryers use. And, yeah. um, 
And so because I did all this research while I was working on these poems, I ended up pitching stories about clotheslines and clothespins and clothespin design and and did all kinds of journalism around that. So it it sort of in some unexpected way has meshed in my life. I don't know. Yeah. The the weird class scorn for clotheslines is something that I didn't wasn't aware of until I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And it came as a complete shock to me because I had always seen clothesline the opposite way as almost like a slightly bougie thing to have. Yes. <laughs> to have one- Who has time to hang their clothes in, Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. well, not, just the, not just the time, you have the space. Yeah. If you have, if you have a yard with a clothesline- Yeah that's a that's almost just you're almost making a statement look at me letting the sun dry my clothes <laughs> you you people can go down to the laundromat and put it in a machine with so, all the other hilariously <laughs> nathan if you had gone on my facebook feed in your little social media you would have okay. seen a whole bunch of photos from last spring to the end of the summer of my clothesline because <laughs> I have a clothesline this year for the first time in like eight years or something. And, and I'm really happy. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I posted a picture of some things hanging and people liked it so much that I kept doing it throughout the summer. So, You're up to, so okay, we finally found the online. probably put it on Instagram. You're right, right. Possible that I've fallen into this trap before. I think you can, you can definitely kill your writing with research. It's a dangerous game I'm playing maybe when I do this, but it's also, right. I can't help it. Because I want to know all this stuff. I've noticed a certain theme in in a lot of the interviews you've done about how you came to the poetry world somewhat from the outside. You didn't do an MFA. You didn't kind of go through the whole English lit path. You kind of came in it, came to it through your own reading and your own enthusiasm to some extent. So a lot of your sense of how writing works in the world was forged by working within journalism yeah. which is a very different way than what a lot of more literary people on that track think in the sense that this is really like simplistic <laughs> i'm making a real sweeping generalization here but instead of thinking like as long as it works for me and maybe a small you know cadre <laughs> of absolutely like-minded you know poetry folks that's fine I've done my job. Whereas if you're coming from the slightly different world, you're like, well, no, it has to exist in the world. It has to be has to be received by people who maybe aren't the exact people you wrote it for. Maybe that it needs to have a life that's a little more external. Um, is that too simplistic in terms of your own thinking? But I I do feel like you have a little more of a sense of these these books and these ideas and these poems should be out. A little bit more rather than just you know. <laughs> well don't we all <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. yes of course <laughs> but yes i think you're hitting on something that i actually in some ways feel quite strongly about i like i i want to write whatever i'm writing in a way that anyone who comes upon it could read it and get something from it that it that i, I i'm not i i hope I'm not writing for some kind of exclusive audience that um, comes to poetry for certain reasons in a certain way. I want to be welcoming 
and also true enough to the human experience that it, that any reader can relate. And I, and I understand and respect that lots of the writing people do has, um, there's some specific, um, project of craft that's going on, um, or, um, concept or, and, and those explorations matter and are important. Um, and they might not be easy to engage with if you're not, you know, embedded in, say, the poetry world. Right. Um, um, and that's just not what I'm drawn to do. Yeah. And um, yeah. I'm drawn to be as welcoming and universal as I can, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. and it relates to just to comments you've made about, you know, how poetry gets reviewed specifically. This idea that you if you don't like a book, you just don't say anything like you don't ever review anything that you don't like or if you get assigned a book and you you, you read it and you're like i don't like this so i'm just not going to write you know can i not write review my feeling was always like well that's that's a weird sort of passive aggressive way of just right and <laughs> like it's saying like mm, we just don't talk about yeah. that and and it also creates this situation where you're like well if i didn't get reviewed does that mean everyone hated my book yeah. like it's a, Are it's, they all just being politely silent about yeah. my book? Whereas I know that you've said in the past, you'd rather just have the conversation and create a discussion. Although the, the tension is always like, you don't want to be the only person ever reviewing that book. And you yeah. said that it didn't work. It's easy for me to say that because I don't think I've ever actually written a review that completely hated a book. So what would I do if I was asked to review a book and read it and hated it? I have not been tested, you know, <laughs> so my, my inclination as a reader is I want to know what someone thought. I want their honest opinion on, on the experience of reading this book and the hope that they would trust that me as a fellow reader would understand that was their experience. And I, I don't, I think there's a difference between a critic condemning a work of art and a critic and a critic or reviewer saying, this is what the experience was like for me. And I didn't mm -hmm. enjoy it for these reasons. Um, I think those are two different things. And, and I don't come down on the side of condemning because I think that's arrogant and mm. often part of a sparring match in the literary world that isn't really productive. But I do want people to give their honest thoughts on what they got from something and myself in the reviewing I've done you know I could be called out on this because I usually I'm pretty winnable like <laughs> like, <laughs> like and and you know if you read reviews I've written I do have questions and criticisms in there but I'm often have been won over in in and I'm, I'm doing my best to engage with what that that author was trying to do and and seeing where it leads and and when you read that way it's actually hard to hate something unless the thing you're engaging with is trying to push you away on purpose right, in some right. Way, you know that's kind of stuff I hate but some people actually love that stuff they like to be pushed at and yeah. so am I the person to be reviewing a book like that maybe not you know <laughs> because yeah um so there's also 
there's a lot there's a lot of places we could go on that on that question i think too sometimes people's critiques are partisan in that they they come down in a certain place with what they think poetry should be or do in terms of form and style and and i'm not i i definitely have inclinations but i'm not partisan in that way i i think it's i think it's diminishing to the craft to say there's only one right way to do it like we don't do that with with music we don't expect all the songs to be following the same form there's lots of different kinds of music and and one listener is allowed to like lots of different kinds of music so i don't know even why this argument exists in poetry you know yeah but but i do know that sometimes you have to be wary of critiques because sometimes they have to do with somebody having their own agenda about what poetry is supposed to be and do and 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 i disagree with that i will also say that i have felt as a writer and as someone who likes to read a lot of criticism and has you know gotten a mm -hmm. lot out of criticism as a reader and as a writer it is kind of i feel like we we are now somewhat living in that dystopian critical yeah. dystopia of if it's not if it's not what the writer liked it doesn't get right written it's about it's not criticism anymore which is a problem it's, yeah. I do have to bring this back to your own experience, though, with while supplies last. There was a time where you'd be like, oh, no, is the Globe and Mail going to hate it or are they going to like it? Whereas now it's like, I don't know if I'll I've, even ever. I've never had a yeah. I've never had a book reviewed in the Globe and Mail. And <laughs> now I never will because they hardly review anything. Yeah. Someone asked me once years and years ago like a, you know, a writer who at the time was even more emerging than I was, like if you know what I mean, like, yeah earlier on the on the track how do you get reviewed in the global in the and i was like are you kidding like i don't know <laughs> it's very random i can tell you that um uh but there was a certain expectation that like you were going to get a, a handful of reviews in large and small I and medium-sized places know, and you kind of assess some of them you like dismiss and some of them you're like well that guy I think I snubbed him at a party once and now he's mad at me. And then this one, like that person got it. And now it's like, if you get two, you're like, I'm I'm doing okay. I might be misremembering, but so far I think there's one review of While Supplies Last in the Miram She Reader. It's, it's not and uncommon. And it's lovely, um, not super in-depth, but like it's a lovely review, you know? So. Mm -hmm. Um, and really nice that someone took the time with the book. Like, like I guess anytime someone wrote about your book, even if they didn't like it, the fact that they took the time with it feels precious, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, and there, and there's, as you know, there's not a lot of places fostering that skill anymore. Um, like I was, as I'm sure you were mentored a little bit, like, like, um, informally mentored in writing reviews. And mm -hmm. I've in turn informally mentored others when I was working at ARC Poetry Magazine and in other capacities. And I don't know how much of that is happening these days because there are so few venues for 
book reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a strange world we're in. It's a, it's a, yeah, there is, I mean, the vacuum doesn't feel personal. The vacuum feels cultural yeah. and, and it's a concern. Um, I had a memoir published in 2020. It was reviewed in a few places, which was really nice, but not very, I will say, not necessarily skillfully, like kindly, Mm -hmm. but not in a way where you felt that they knew the book or how to talk about why they liked the book, if that makes sense. So it's like, who's... Who's mentoring the reviewers now, right? Um, I can sense the hesitancy in your voice when you talk about because it does feel weird to be like, it was so nice of them to give me that space, to give me that that real estate and to take the time, but it just felt like it was a little bit superficial or a little bit yeah. off off the mark. And I've had that experience of reading reviews of my work. And I'm like, oh my God great a review and I sort of start skimming it and it's oh good it's positive thank you and then I'm reading I'm like "Mm." it just feels like they're summing up the book like I'm getting the summary of the book back to me and I'm not no they're not nothing was pulled out that I didn't that you couldn't have pulled out on the back cover whereas in my when I published my first book of poems way back in 2006 um this writer named Olivia Cole reviewed it for Books in Canada. And it was so in-depth <laughs> and it was so interesting. And I learned stuff about my own writing when I read that review that I have not forgotten, you know? Mm. Um, and uh, I haven't had that experience since, you know, with any. So, and maybe there's a reason for that <laughs> that, <laughs> that it has to do with me but you know that's a real gift when somebody is is really digging into what you've done and trying to figure it out you know and and seeing things that you yourself might not see i need to ask you a question that's tangentially related to journalism and and your poetry which is the group of poems in while supplies last based on the traffic reports, uh-huh. the CBC radio <laughs> traffic reports by Doug Hempstead, whom I've already told you is a friend of mine. Yeah. <laughs> was a high school friend of mine. We got suspended from high school together. So you're from uh, Pembroke. Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, I'm actually uh, e- even worse. I'm from Petawawa, uh, but I went to high school in, in Pembroke. And when I saw him post that you had dropped the book off for him and that he had, it sort of blew him away. It felt to me like, weirdly two worlds colliding <laughs> you know like those are what this this is yeah. your, your this this chocolate is not supposed to be in that peanut butter like these days <laughs> thing two things are not supposed to meld i can't even fathom the idea of of using doug's uh, <laughs> traffic reports as the basis for poetic work can how did that happen why what, what what's going on there? well doug's funny that's how it happened yes. so it's, yeah so Hence, we got suspended together for, yeah. for us, like basically pulling a prank in high school. And I will tell you, I've actually defended him since this because I, you know, this has come up in conversation with friends and I've had someone say, oh, I can't listen to. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I love Doug's traffic reports. So um, we, so in our home, we often have the radio on, like when we're 
you know, I always have the radio on when I'm putting around in the kitchen and cooking and doing dishes and whatever. And, um, and it was, you know, we were home a lot during the pandemic, not in any need of traffic reports, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, yeah. Zero need of traffic reports, but Doug was doing the traffic reports from his basement, sometimes losing connection with the station, um, which added a level of interest and sometimes interrupted by his dogs and, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, uh, he, so I think what happened was he said something funny that, you know, we laughed about he's, and then it, it happened again and someone missed it. And we like, so we, a small family of three people, my husband, my son, and myself, and we were getting a kick out of some of the things he would say and the ways that he describes even just where things are happening. So I find his directional um, descriptions are a little bit like the way my relatives in rural Nova Scotia tell you how to get somewhere. So he gives <laughs> landmarks. And, and so I find it very pictorial and kind of interesting. It's not just like, he's not just giving like the highway and the exit name. He's like where the Tim Hortons is, you know, where there's people lined up at the Tim Hortons or yeah. where the, like one of the poems is the church that became a spa that became a, I can't even remember now. There's like, you know, so in the middle of his report, he's giving a little almost local geographic history while he's yeah. telling you where the traffic is backed up. And I find that brilliant and entertaining. And, and so my son and I in particular started writing down quotes from the traffic reports where Doug said something funny, like it was a funny description of a place or a funny way to talk about how awful the traffic was. Cause he's also pretty good at that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and then one day I realized there were these quotes all over the house on little pads of paper, <laughs> wherever you happen to be when you wanted to jot this thing down so you could show it to Henry later or whatever. And Henry had them written down in his bedroom. And, and, and I was like, maybe I should try and do something with these, make a little collage. And so kind of as a joke, I made a little collage out of quotes from the traffic reports. And then, but then they keep coming, right? And then he says something funny the next day and we write. So it turned into like five poems or something because, and it's still, Sometimes I have the radio on and I think, damn, there's that's another really one. really <laughs> good, but I can't do anything with it now because I've already. <laughs> so, <anyway. laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. So I don't really know what was happening there, except it was a fun thing to do. And it must have responded to some need we had at that time. Right. And then Carmen Starnino, who's my editor, when he first read the poems, he gave me this. We were we were on the phone and he and he gave me this description of everything that those poems were doing. And I was like, really? I had no idea. <laughs> I just <laughs> I thought you were gonna tell me to cut them. <laughs> so but it's yeah. all Doug's words. And I made sure to make that clear in the notes at the back of the book. Like I've just moved them around and maybe taken some out, but um I have not added a single word to those poems. I've just piece them together like puzzles. I was about to say that I'm almost certain Doug will listen to this and and hear this conversation, but knowing his attention span, he may have bailed about, right. about 30 minutes ago. So yeah. maybe he doesn't hear this, but uh, he, 
he when he put that note on Facebook, I was so happy because he said this it's something like this uh, uh I forget how you might remember how he put it, but it was like he's actually deliberately trying to do something mm. more than just do the traffic. And I thought he was just being dug. <laughs> Like, this is just this guy doing the traffic, but he's actually trying to somehow meld narrative even into this supposedly mundane aspect of people's everyday lives. And and I was so happy when I read that, like that somehow I found it, what he was trying to do. And I right. think he was happy that I found it. Like, it was this really nice, we had this little exchange through the Facebook thread. <laughs> I was really like... <laughs> very happy anyway, <laughs> i hope i'm right about that but that was the yeah. impression i got yeah i do think there is there is intention behind it but i also think it's it's sort of 50 50 that it's also just doug because yeah. i was actually recently in ottawa for the um for the writers festival and i did an event and my event just happened to be on the same night that he was his band was playing oh, downtown somewhere yeah and so i did my event did the book signing thing and then i a friend and I drove over and saw saw him play, and he introduces each song with a little monologue about the basis of it, and it's usually some something related to you know the journalism he has done, going out to see some accident or whatever. Yeah. And it did strike me that at a certain point that the monologues were becoming longer than the songs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was starting to get about 60, 40 monologue to song monologues to music. Maybe so. the traffic report is the perfect form for him because he has to contain it. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones. <laughs>